0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the Into the Impossible podcast. I am your host, Brian Keating, professor of physics at UC San Diego. And UC San Diego features rather prominently in the book uh, by my current guest, Heather McDonald, uh, I'm going to read your bio, uh, Heather McDonald is the best-selling author of The War on Cops, the, Truman, the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and a contributing editor of City Journal. She holds a BA from Yale University and an MA from Cambridge in English, and a JD from Stanford. Her writings have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The New Republic, The Partisan Review. Uh, among others, and she lives in New York. She's visiting San Diego, and we are distant uh, as we are having this conversation uh, in, in San Diego, and it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here, Adam. Thank you so much.
0: Brad, it's an honor to be on the podcast with
1: you at long last. Thank you. so 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 interesting. It's so great to have you here. So, I've been, uh, you know, obviously consuming your content for so long. I really uh, love it uh, on, on many different levels, and I love the way that you think, and we don't always agree on everything, as nobody does, as we always say. And we. <laughs> The only person you agree with is yourself 100% of the time. Some people don't even agree with themselves most of the time. Um,
0: I, try to, I try to challenge myself to, to realize that the criticisms I like, you know, lodge at the other side can easily be against
1: me. So. Yeah. So we'll get into some, uh, you know, gentle uh, critiques or at least the so-called steel man arguments. I, I listened to your interview with Michael Shermer who's a mutual friend of ours and uh, and he has this new book out called Giving the Devil His Due and I've, I've seen a lot of proliferation of these books. Dave Rubin has a book out who I know is a friend of yours as well. Had him on the podcast. There are a lot of books that are complaining about the, you know, the kind of treatment, the squelching of free discourse and conversation. I wanted to ask you first, you know, how do you rank that as a threat to sort of um, an educated society? like the, the discourse that's being perhaps suppressed, I mean Dave Rubin claims it's so bad he has to found a whole new social network and I, I know you're not big on social networks but do you, do you really feel like it's as big a threat as say Dave and, and Mike do or do you have a different approach to this, to this issue?
0: Well I think we've seen the acceleration of the threat in the last month or so, we're speaking now in mid-July and the left is now starting to turn on itself Uh, and we see more and more actions being taken within the private sphere against non-conforming speech. But I believe that the free speech problem, as central as it is and as truly threatening as it is to the possibility of a society where people can work out their disagreements through reason rather than through violence, that that problem... As troubling as it is, is a symptom of a deeper problem, or it's an epiphenomenon of a deeper problem, which is the discourse about victimology. The efforts to silence non conforming speech on campus, which is, have now spread to the society at large, result from this idea that to be a female or a so-called underrepresented minority on a college campus that is predominantly blacks and Hispanics, is to be at daily risk of one's life. And that is said, I don't think hyperbolically, there's always a slight play around it, are they merely speaking as a figure of speech, or do they mean it literally? And frankly, I think they mean it pretty literally, that 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 circumambient racism and sexism is so great that uh, these college students are, are are literally under daily threat. But the effort to shut down speech on campuses grows out of that conceit that college campuses are places of lethal and systemic bigotry. And it is that idea that sexism and racism are the defining features of a college campus and now of of American society in general. That is a conceit that is even more dangerous. Mm. It It is tearing down meritocratic standards. It is tearing down the possibility of colorblind accomplishment of institutions that are driven by excellence and not by the trivialities and the irrelevancies Of sex and skin
1: color. Hmm. How do you uh, make of it? So, I have a a friend, a colleague, uh, Professor Chanda Prescott Weinstein, who wrote an article recently delivered to a collection of American particle physicists just recently. To the High Energy Physics Advisory Panel, which is entitled Particle Physics in the Wake of Slavery and Settler Colonialism, in which, you know, I I don't want to get into the whole thing and and, and really uh, dispute or or, or, um, have your opinion about the art, but I mean, her basic point is that places like where her alma mater Harvard and where she currently teaches in in New Hampshire, these uh, had historic ties to slavery, to owners of, of slaves in the case of, and even overseers of the slaves. Uh, in the case of of, of Harvard, uh, according to uh, Professor Prescott Weinstein, she also says, you know, the land on which it's owned is Native American land and, and so forth. Um, when I look at UC San Diego, where we are, um, this land, if you like, you know, it's, it's probably not the right way to put it, but it was impossible for me to own a house as a Jew in the 1960s. And in fact, the covenant on my house, the so-called La Jolla Covenant, said the house could not be sold to a black, a Jew, or a Mexican. And it was rampant here until Jonas Salk came here and and Roger Ravel founded this wonderful university that I'm very fortunate to call my home institution. He said you can't have a university without Jews, and and he was able to convince the locals to overcome that. But for a while, there was doubt because of this covenant against Jews and, and and blacks and Mexicans specifically. So can you separate, you know, the historical, um, one thing I worry about is, is there any forbearance? Is there a way to do, you know, as we say, in Judaism, teshuva, to repent um, or is it, if it was once historically, um, you know, ill gotten land, etc. as this land was, this Kumi land, um, according to historians, uh, that goes back thousands of years. So when, when, how do you separate that? Um, how do you separate the fact of history that these lands where these universities were belong to others, first of all, and, and that some of the um, uh, the wealth of these universities, say Harvard, your arch nemesis as a Yale uh, grad, um, that they owned slaves? And even L.U. Yale allegedly was a slave owner, I believe. Uh, is, it, is it possible to, by mere passage of time, uh, to erase that, that history, or is it endemically, systemically, as it's often said? Woven into the fabric of these institutions?
0: Well, first of all, I would distinguish two points that I take it she's making. One may be related to the shutdown STEM movement, which we saw earlier this summer, which would argue that science itself is uh, somehow inherently racist or sexist. And her second point would be that, leaving aside the nature of science, that there is institutional racism mm-hmm. in universities, in cities, uh, that we have yet to purge or, or make reparations for. So let me address those, uh, Syriata. The idea that science is itself tainted by racism and sexism, which was in fact the claim that was being made and is being made now by scientific societies. I think even, uh, Maybe at UC San Diego, or UC. No, it was UC Davis. Uh, the head of the Earth Sciences Department there is running a whole set of readings on the racism of Earth Sciences. This is preposterous. It 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 it, it makes me sorrowful and 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 angry that somebody in the field of physics could think of blending those two realms, because the very hope of science is that it is a universal language, that it is open to every single participant on a colorblind and sexblind basis that has been able to transcend national differences. It is a language that all can participate in that is the language of nature. And so to bring... The tr- again, the trivialities of gender and and, and and race politics into science, I think is an amazing uh, betrayal of what this accomplishment is, this extraordinary triumph with the scientific method of randomized controlled experiments, which obviously is not what you're doing in physics but is something that gives us we do it. In physics. We
1: don't do it in astronomy. It's hard to change the temperature of the sun and have a control. But but let, let me just oh, like, can
0: do it through regression analysis. But yeah. But the but the second question is of course there is the reality, the historical reality of discrimination in this country that was a grotesque violation of our founding ideals. Something that is hard to fathom, that for so many decades, for so many centuries the leaders of this country, starting with the founding fathers, could have tolerated that contradiction. And and I think that the founders did so consciously, having made that devil's bargain. That is a different matter than the reality today. Yes, there are students, undergraduates, who are playing around with taboos that may make the occasional uh, comment that is now viewed as a microaggression. But the idea that any science STEM department is discriminating against qualified females and underrepresented minorities at this point Mm -hmm. is fantasy. Mm -hmm. Anybody in a university environment has got to know that the, the game of every faculty hiring search now is to find the qualified, remotely qualified female or underrepresented minority candidate to hire.
1: When we had 1960, when UCSD was founded, as I said, it was founded, be, you know, uh, in part because of this desire to have Jonas Salk here, who had, you know, invented the vaccine that uh, treated polio. Um, and yet, as late as that, uh, in the sciences even, there was discrimination against Jews. And and this science as a method hasn't changed, you know, in, in large part since the invention of the scientific method. Galileo popularized the scientific method in 1609, 1610, using evidence, trials, as you said, uh, thought experiments um so given that the laws of physics are time translation invariant in other words the law of gravity is as true now as it was in Galileo's time um, why are you so sanguine that that physicists now as we discriminated against Jews you know Hitler had uh, his chief of Aryan physics was a man by uh, name of Philip Lennard, who for decades successfully advocated that Einstein should not get a Nobel Prize because he practiced what's called Jewish physics and in fact he didn't get it for his main discoveries of the two theories of relativity instead he got it for an effect related uh, unsurprisingly, to this guy, Lenard's uh, experimental discovery. So Einstein provided the theoretical underpinning of the photoelectric effect, and in part, that was attributed uh, his Nobel Prize. So, given that the Nobel Prize, and even admissions of people like Richard Feynman and others, were barred admission from places like, or, or throttled, quoted um, out of getting positions at places like Princeton or you know Columbia. And even Maria Gephardt Mayer, who won the Nobel Prize in 1963 uh, for certain phenomenon related to the nucleus of the, ad- of the atom, she's uh, who our physics department is named after here in San Diego. She couldn't get a job uh, except for the fact that she was appointed sort of an as assistant for her husband, who was a lesser physicist at Argonne National Laboratory. So this is in the 60s. This wasn't, you know, 200 years ago. Uh, how much has really changed if, if um, you know, we all know that there were, there were quotas on, on Jews there were um, unspoken, these covenants against Jews and, and women um, to some extent. Um, why should be when that that these, if not overtly, systemically, as the language has it, that there aren't, um, you know, perhaps a need to counteract that, as was done with Maria. So Maria Geppert, if she didn't get the job here as a professor, maybe, you know, this this department would have suffered greatly, and we only got it because the people in Chicago wouldn't give her a position because she was a woman.
0: Please Give me some examples of competitively qualified females, blacks, or Hispanic physicists that you know of that you think should have gotten a job who did not. Well, Give me an example. Yeah. Currently, currently. It's, I'm talking about now the, the you know, anti-Jewish quotas yeah. mm-hmm. in the past were people did that unapologetically. Our culture has changed 180 degrees. We are now affirmatively... Anti-racist. Mm-hmm. I would love when the when the chancellor of UC San Diego or the president of Yale gets up and beats their chests about being a racist institution. Name some names. Name some names about the faculty who you think are discriminating against qualified uh, physicists in the in the elevated sanctified victim categories. Who are, the, who are your faculty bigots, and why haven't you fired them? Yeah. Alessandro Strumia, as you well know, a physicist, Italian physicist from PISA who delivered a paper at CERN and used to be at CERN, the European uh, Consortium of, of Nuclear Physics, showed that females are hired and promoted with a thinner research record than males. Mm-hmm. It simply is not the case. I've talked to, if, here at UC San Diego, scientists who come up with their final three lists, uh, the shortlist for hiring. And if it doesn't contain a female, the dean will say, tear it up, start over again. The whole process...
1: I've never actually had that assist, as you say. I've never seen an official memo that says things like that. I'm not saying that it's impossible to envision that it doesn't happen uh, or it happens. At mem- so you've
0: never been in a hiring committee that has a final short list and they have said, we need a female here.
1: I've never, I've never had someone say specifically. I've been on committees where the, or all the candidates that we had in the final analysis were all female for example, oh. that has occurred. Um, but, you know, but these Is are... Is that a problem? Are, that
0: get me a male? No.
1: No. The, no one's but said, if you have right.
0: all male, what happens if you have all male?
1: Um, you know, that's really interesting because in the past few years astronomy has become far more, far more, and it's, you know, my, some of the most brilliant colleagues that I could ever be happy, and I've worked on to hire these women specifically, not because they're women, because they're the best scientists that applied for the job at the time, and, you know, in my opinion, again, I can agree that I've never, I I have yet to meet one of my colleagues from left to right on the spectrum, and you know, we can talk about the propensity on each side of of the distribution, if it's really bimodal in terms of left and right, let's leave that aside, but I've yet to meet someone that says, I am a racist, but I have yet to not meet someone who will not say the system is systemically racist. And I say, mathematically speaking, that's impossible to reckon unless there is a conspiracy. Unless, Because what do you have to have to have a system? You need multiple people believing that something is true and conspiring to do something. You know, conspiracy means breathe together, right? So they're whispering, they're breathing, they say saying, we, can, we must hire a female. I have yet to see that from the dean side, and I have yet to see that, you know, on the faculty side. Um, so, where is the systemic? Like, where do we? Where does it manifest itself? Is it? Is it? I mean, there are things where, system,
0: which is systemic. The, you're saying where is the systemic? Pressure is pressure to hire right people?
1: women, for example? Yes, right. Where? Where is it? Is it?
0: Well, you've just been in a, in a sort of a sacred bubble that <laughs> if it has not manifested itself in the physics department, because I have never talked to a professor. Anywhere on campus, on a campus anywhere in the country, where that is not we have a co- very explicit goal. Mm-hmm. Then the diversity
1: language is constant. Yeah. You mention in the book, and it is true, we nucleated these positions called excellence positions, right. and they were to have an emphasis perhaps equal to research and teaching. Maybe not in some cases. I know at UC Davis, the chancellor has said that contributions to diversity shall be held equal to contributions to research and teaching. I believe that's the case. But here in San Diego, at least the official word was these positions could go to men. And in fact, they they have. We've had male physicists get so-called excellence positions. White males? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I mean, we, unfortunately, we don't have any African. I've tried to recruit many African, and I want to get into a couple of cases that actually, um, you know, in the interest of time, we I hear often in science that it's not only the discrimination that takes place in the academia environment. It's the fact that these professors will get pulled over, they'll get arrested. They'll have gun- the only physicists I've ever known to have guns held to their heads. These are two eminent uh, physicists, high energy theorists, uh, and they're African American. They've had guns held to their heads. They've had police um, uh, pull them over for the crime of driving a car to the faculty club or whatever at these very Ivy League universities. This is this is their yeah. I have no reason to doubt what they're saying. This is the only people I know. And so is that, is that attributable to the, great? in other words, is it a hologram? Is it a projection of the outside racism in our society uh, such that the extent that exists that then is impossible for them? Because these are the same people. Anytime there's a search, my friends who are African-Americans get called upon to participate in these, in these sessions and, and to, um, you know, and, and to really—it's almost above and beyond what I get asked to do as a white man in academia. They're always asked to be on these committees to search, you know, whether it's to nucleate the positions I said before or to set some strategic goals for increasing diversity at UCSD. And I always say, look, if there's an island of the, of the best talented African-American physicists, just do the thought experiment— if they're, if they're, you know, if they're at the top level, we're going to accept them, but so is Harvard, so is Yale, so is Berkeley, and these are older institutions than UCSD. So I, I guess I'm wondering, I'm kind of meandering here, but the, but the question I'm asking is, um, is, it, is it possible that the, the racism in society as a whole and the need for the very few blacks in academia to play an outsized role, is that sort of like a tax on black intellectuals, that white intellectuals like myself, I don't have to pay because my skin color.
0: Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't claim that you need diversity mentors uh, and and then complain about being asked to be a diversity mentor. Uh, it's you know it, it's a circular system. It's I, I think it's ridiculous. I, let me just speak as a as from a female point of view. Mm-hmm. The idea that I would need some female. To aspire to be a physicist or, or you know, discover radium—that becomes a impossible loop to to break out of if there are none. Marie Curie did not need a female mentor. Why not have a mentor or aspire to be the best possible physicist? Mm. I I don't think that one should only be able to think about the future if somebody's of your. Sex has been but, there, but
1: again, already. she almost didn't win the Nobel Prize. In fact, it's it was a her... different world. Again, yeah.
0: do you really think that the Nobel Prize committee is discriminating against females? It's that just to me, it defies credulity. Oh, I've got my own, own
1: negative opinions of so the Nobel. <laughs> you
0: have to be so deep into implicit bias, mm. which which I just don't. I think that the explicit uh, cues. And rhetoric is far more important. It overrides any possible implicit bias. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as far as why we don't have the black physicists, you guys are the scientists. You know what the pipeline looks like. You know what the academic skills gap looks like. Mm -hmm. It does not close. You have at the National Assessment of Educational Progress Test, this is the NAEP, 8th grade level, math, Over 40% of black 8th graders are not even at the basic level of math skills. So, and that is a huge proportion. They're not even basic. They're below basic. Mm. The very few of them are proficient or advanced. That that gap continues throughout college. There's a 200-point SAT gap. GRE is the same thing. LSATs. Over a standard deviation, and they'll say
1: that's a reflection of racial bias in the testing.
0: If you want to say that, fine. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, by the time you get to the PhD level, there are many scientific fields that have zero Black PhD graduates. That many engineering fields, I think, nuclear physicists—they are not out there. As you say, you every school is competing in a ruthless dog-eat-dog competition for the six or so national black PhDs in a STEM field. So to expect, given this academic skills gap, that any school should have a proportional representation of black PhDs, which is 13% in its faculty, it's ridiculous
1: Yeah, on the other hand I mean, I have heard And I don't want to name names Because you actually know these people Some of the physicists that I'm, uh, uh, that I'm thinking about Who, upon, that no one will say I'm not going to hire this person because he's black That would be career suicide That would be uh, That's just foolish on, on his face Maybe there are people that would say, I don't know But I know of, in particular One extremely prominent, you know Nobel-caliber physicist that He hasn't won a Nobel Prize But uh, upon hearing talks Whenever I'm with him, he'll hear a talk And it happens to be an African-American Who's speaking? He'll say, "Oh, this guy's a charlatan," or this, and things that he would never say. You know, uh, and, and I've actually communicated to friends of mine who are African Americans, and I do want to read something because I actually think there's a slightly different approach that maybe maybe we don't hear about so often, because there is this, and I appreciate the reverence that you have for physics and for physical sciences, the so-called hard sciences, Um, but I think there's always this halo effect. It's a form of bias. I'm not talking about implicit bias or whatever, but it's a bias that we think that because person A is so brilliant in nuclear physics, that he or she is going to be so brilliant about social policy. So I want to read an an article by a very uh, close mentor of mine. Uh, This is uh, Dr. James Gates, Sylvester James Gates, who's the Ford Foundation professor at Brown University. He uh, won the National Medal of Science from President Obama, and he's uh, he's a hero and mentor to me. He's one of the f- uh, fathers of superstring theory, supersymmetry, rather. He's the first black theoretical physics um, a PhD from MIT, and was a postdoc at Caltech. He is the president elect of the most prestigious, I think, in the world. I'm biased, but the most prestigious organization of physicists ever, which is called the American Physical Society. It's my, you know, one of the few unions I belong to, and he's writing just last week at a conference. This kind of um, in contradistinction to the essay I read by Professor Prescott Weinstein. Professor Gates writes, um, since 1995, I've been... Uh, uh, pers- uh, preserving some small number of written reflections on my journey as uh, as a scientist who is African-American. These works are in the forms of essays, not polished didactic narratives. Each essay is a freestanding document. If left to my own natural tendencies, I return to the question, why is the mathematics of space-time supersymmetry lying at the foundation and heart of string theory so completely and poorly understood? The majority of these writings address questions around post-secondary education and the struggles to maintain the meager and modest progress that have occurred within my lifetime. These do not deeply engage the questions of whether or not ideas in STEM disciplines can be black, or, nor, if such do exist, do they even matter. Neither have I written on the question of whether racism is systemic or, fractal te- or a fractal tessellation in STEM disciplines. However, something has changed. The prima facie evidence of this is by my very existence as the first African-American theoretical physicist elected to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences since it was established, he notes, by President Abraham Lincoln makes progress impossible for me to deny. And and he's one of these uh, gentlemen that I know who has been, um, uh, you know, confronted with you know firearms by police, pulled over and, and harassed in some sense, but he's saying that it makes imp- uh, progress impossible for him to deny. He's at the highest level now as the president-elect of the American Physical Society. But here's what I want to get your thoughts on. I do not represent myself as an authority on this complicated domain of human society, as I will only present my thoughts for others to essay, contemplate, and evaluate, and weigh as they come to decisions about their own beliefs and actions. I fervently wish that I could present data or mathematics, as that is the foundation with which we scientists are most familiar. Unfortunately, the number of relevant data points is so small, I can only offer anecdotes and thoughts that flow from these. I want to ask you... Is it a problem that we task physicists – I don't have training in this and and, bias assessment and and sociology and racism. I have training in astrophysics and detection of cosmological signals that are 14 billion years old. But yet I'm often put in positions where I have to weigh these complex socio-political dynamical things that I have no training in, and nor do I quite frankly have an interest in devoting that. I feel like I have skills. My skills are to educate black, white, any color, any gender, any sex – that's my core goal. I'm, I have a mission. It gets detracted, and and I get um, um, you know, it gets diluted when I have to pretend that I'm some sort of expert on complex issues of race in society or, or gender issues in society. I wonder, is some of the nexus of the problem the fact that we're relying on the people in the system who have no training or expertise, and maybe you don't think it's important, or maybe actually, what is your impression? Do you think that there's a value to you know education, obviously not like indoctrination, but should physicists be educated in issues of race, or should we stick stay in our lane, so to speak, and not really just focus on physics and then, you know, uh, and leave, the social thinking to other people?
0: Well, I don't know if, if, for, to what end you would have them educated in race. Mm-hmm. If the issue is to counter, uh, countervene their own biases, uh, I would say no. If it's to educate them on the basis of race as a general matter, I would also say no. I think mm-hmm. they have much more important things to do. Mm-hmm. Again, please name me names of, of competitively qualified blacks who you think were turned down from jobs currently uh, in physics departments that should have gotten them. I can't. But
1: they'll say it's systemic and therefore it's it's hidden. it it's been so know, deeply woven.
0: Well. again, I just I don't believe it. Every every signal being sent now is diversity. Hmm. Uh, and it, I would if I had a child. To be honest, if he were black. He's going to have a better set of opportunities right now than being white. Let's just be honest, because he'll get into Harvard with lower SATs, lower GPAs. If, if Harvard was completely colorblind in its admissions, its black students, and this was from its own evidence uh, in the recent affirmative action lawsuit that was filed in Boston, the, the proportion of black students there would go down from 14% to less than 1%, and those disparities get larger and larger at, with every lower tier, because Harvard has the cream of the crop. So it just is not the case that there is discrimination against the official victim groups. So science, let it stick to its, what it does best, and I, I do not think it's necessary for physicists to have education in race, whatever that means. Race is not... a it's not, a, it's not a field of study. Uh, it's a fact of life. Uh, it has been turned into a field of study by what I would say is largely a, a specious industry now that is determined to keep America obsessed about this issue. Uh, and most Americans, in my view, are desperate to become post-racial. They are of good heart, good nature. They, would rather, they don't give a damn about race. They're ready to get along and the race industry which extends through every aspect of society now will not let them do so.
1: So just the last time turning to this uh, essay by Professor Prescott Weinstein, She says, uh, less than 100 years after the end of chattel slavery, but not prison slavery, which continues today, in the famed 1954 Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, the majority argued that separate can never be equal. Writing for the majority, Earl Warren highlighted this conclusion because the intangible considerations of equal treatment of a student's ability to study, to engage in discussions and exchange views with other students, and in general, to learn their profession. He noted that segregation based on race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status. And so she's talking about the feeling and the, and the sense of dignity that students have if they're perceived. So, you know, some might say, well, maybe they don't even get to Harvard because they suffer the systemic racism that's embedded within our society and that there's, you know, there's differential, um, you know, uh, there, um, there's differential grievances that that occur to the African-American community, so maybe they won't even get there. And I think she's talking about dignity and I wonder if the preference, if you could see As, you know, as as Roger Revelle did here in in San Diego, that he basically forced on the community this, you have to accept Jews, and it took some time. I mean, there were still in in the title to my house, it said, I could not sell it to, you know, from the people I bought it from, I could not sell it to a black, as I said before, a black, a Jew, or a Mexican. And that was persistent in the title of the document, the very house where I would later raise my family. Um, Is it possible that, you know, the greater, you know, society would be, um, uh, the Society of Physicists might be improved, but it might take some time. And maybe these rules, we can't assess it because there hasn't been enough time, just as if I assessed it in 1961, what was the impact of allowing Jews to live in La Jolla, um, it would have been impossible to say, oh, there's not enough time elapsed to make a judgment as to whether or not that policy had been, you know, of a preferential, you know, uh, religion-based admission, if you will, to, uh, to San Diego. Uh, Is it possible that, you know, these things just take time and eventually these these will catch up? I mean, that would, I think, be the hope to have... Equal representation based on you know all groups and zero discrimination. I don't, as I said, I don't know anyone who's a racist. I hate racism. I know you feel similarly. Um, so maybe it's just going to take time before these tools that have been you know ver- fairly recently implemented across the UC system, as you point out in the book, uh, this UC one, UC two dichotomy. Um, you know, maybe it'll just take time. And, and and who are we now in in 2020 to assess? policies that are five years old so do you feel optimistic that things will like if we come back and have this conversation in 50 years after we've invented you know some pills to keep us alive that things will be better or do you think it would it would improve on its own so to speak
0: take time Baki. you uh versus university of california was 78 there was already massive racial preferences that was a suit about Baki a Jew, as a matter of fact, being denied admission to D- Davis Medical School uh, because they were already setting aside 100 spots, I think, or maybe it was 16 spots out of 100 in the incoming class for blacks and Hispanics and, I think, Asians back then. Uh, this was Preferences were already going on. We have lived with a racial preference regime now for well over half a century. This is not some novel experiment. Mm. Uh, it, it, I think you're, again, blending some things. If You're talking about compensatory education. Okay, we can look again. It's not as if we haven't been looking. It's not as if we haven't been trying with K through 12 to try and close that skills gap to put more people in the pipeline. Mm. Uh, there's been... This has been an obsession with American society, from the great society. I, I do not know a single wealthy Republican donor in New York who is not trying to do social uplift to close that achievement gap. It is a, a obsession of the elites. We have been trying to do that. But the fact of the matter is by the time you get to college, it's too late. But we're still doing it. We've had preferences in undergraduate admission, we've had preferences in graduate admission, we've had preferences in professional schools, law schools, medical schools, business schools. They have had preferences for decades. Hmm. This is not a novel five-year experiment, and the the evidence for me, empirical evidence, is compelling that Richard Sander started working on the UCLA law professor that preferences harm their beneficiaries by catapulting students into academic environments for which they're not competitively qualified puts them at a disadvantage. Let's take it out of the toxic race area and look at sex.
1: Yeah, right.
0: If MIT decided it needed more females in its freshman class and admitted me with a math SAT, let's say, of 650 out of an 800-point score and my peers were all on average about 800, but this was what they were doing to diversify on the basis of gender, my first year at MIT would be hell. Right. Because the teaching is going to be pitched to my Mm -hmm. the, The average of the freshman calculus, who are far ahead of me. If instead of being catapulted artificially into MIT, I had gone instead to, let's say, Boston University or Boston College, or even Amherst, uh, where I was whatever, you know, the 650 would be an average, I would succeed, and that, I would have a great chance of graduating with a STEM, STEM degree. We see that happening, the, the, the Duke study that looked at the fact that more black male undergraduates enter Duke intending to major in a STEM field than white male undergraduates. But by the time senior year, those black male undergraduates have dropped out by half, leaving the graduating STEM classes at Duke overwhelmingly Asian and white because those black undergraduates who've been admitted with over a standard deviation below in math SAT qualifications couldn't keep up. It's no It's no criticism of their math skills. It's a criticism of the system. That puts them into academic environments which and that's preceding the
1: colleges. But you know, again, just to play devil's advocate, for women, you know, back before Title 9 and, and other um, uh, measures, legal measures, they made up a much. More. I was talking to you on the way over here about my mother, who had a dropout of you know Cornell, and she only you know perhaps was was admitted there because my father was a professor there at the time, and and then she had my, my older brother, and then uh, she couldn't she couldn't continue to be an un, uh, an undergrad, and then she went back and got her, her, her bachelor's degree in Connecticut you know 40 years later or 30 years later. Uh, and by that time it had gone from she was the only person only woman in these in her undergraduate class at Cornell in 1960 sometime to she was you know almost 50 percent right In fact now there's more female undergraduates than. Me. So isn't is that not a sign of progress uh, in terms of you know thanks to these uh, Title IX and other other uh, provisions?
0: Uh, it depends. I don't think yeah you have a 300% greater chance of a female being admitted to Cornell's engineering department than males. Given the math SAT gap between males and females, I don't think that is a sign of progress. I don't think as a female... I should be admitted with lower SATs and, and math qualifications than males. I think that's, it's an insult.
1: And yet they say, as studies have shown, that there's, a, you know, in terms of the actual student performance, which is why places like the University of California campuses, many of them, Harvard, Princeton, elsewhere, are uh, abolishing, not even not even saying that's optional to take the physics GRE, but they're not even going to consider it, so don't even bother taking it, and this is a new development. Um, and that's because uh, the studies that uh, at least I've seen as a physicist, uh, practicing physicist uh, show very little to no correlation between success as a professional physicist as as my colleagues are male, female, black, white, and their performance on the GREs. And you know just because because of that, they claim it's uh, it's burdensome, needsome, and we shouldn't we shouldn't bother with it. So, yeah. um, you know I mean, that's, if that's there led was to. Not, the, if
0: there's not disparate impact in those scores, we would not be getting rid of them. The only reason we're getting rid of them is not because they don't have predictive value, not because they don't contribute something to the ability to select students. It's because they have disparate impact. But I would say as well, you know, you keep conflating the past with the present of your mother may well have experienced anti-female quotas. That is simply not our present reality. We have been trying compensatory preferences for five decades. It does not work, the gap does not close. Mm-hmm. In fact, black students do worse than their SATs would predict. Mm-hmm. The idea that the SATs are, are discriminatory, that there's racism baked into the test, is simply wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, under, they over-predict black performance. If these sorts of programs closed the achievement gap, they would have worked. The solution again is to go back to the culture to to create an, a, an academic culture of success. Jews were discriminated against in science. You know what happened? You you whoop their ass anyway because you decided we're, we're just going to try the hell and we're not going to put up with this. Yeah, and many you many, did not you did not demand say that standards be lowered for you or. But you, you kept trying. that, And you had a culture that, that put overwhelming emphasis on academic achievement. We're seeing that in Asians now, who is. They're, they're, they're destroying outperforming
1: whites, right? Yeah.
0: They're, they're destroying everybody. Mm-hmm. It comes from the family, it comes from a culture that does not define academic achievement as selling out your race.
1: Well, I want to turn just in the last few minutes uh, that we have today, maybe we 'll be able to do a part two um, you You obviously are a deep thinker about education, and education you know it presumably is one of the highest values or our highest achievements. Of the, our civilization, I want to ask you if uh, if there was a the McDonald University—not the, not the one where the McDonald's, where right. I, I've spent way too many time, uh, lunches in my life—but uh, if there was a McDonald University, what would it look like? What kinds of offerings? I've heard you say on previous shows that education is an act of love, which I find a very beautiful uh, message. Obviously, it should be platonic. I pointed out some of my colleagues in the UC system and elsewhere have not obeyed that. Um, and uh, and, I, and I do think, I mean, just, just as a quick aside, I mean, I do have a policy that I probably wouldn't have had if I was a professor in the olden days. Whenever I meet with a student, I can always keep the door open. I want to do that. Unless they ask me to close the door, I'm going to keep it open, male, female. I have had, um, you know, blessed to have the best students in the world, I think, in the universe. And I've had a, uh, you know, almost a third, which is higher than the national average of physicists that were women. I've had minority students from underrepresented backgrounds, um, but I want to ask you, um, uh, what would what would what is the goal of an education, and what would a university that you were the you know chancellor of, president of, look like?
0: Well, I think there is an eros of learning, and I have to say, I fell in love with my professors, and it was platonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, that I revered. Uh, my professors at you Yale, know, because they they stood for knowledge mm-hmm. and scholarship and wisdom. Uh, I, I think in, in that regard, I was in many ways blinded because I became an acolyte of deconstruction because it seemed to be the hottest thing happening, and it, it promised a secret mm-hmm. knowledge about language, which I was always very interested in. Uh, and I got sucked into what I think was a, uh, ultimately... In the case of Yale's Paul de Man, a literally quite insane uh, worldview. But at least back then, those people, the original progenitors of deconstruction, were true scholars. They, as much as I wasted time doing deconstruction, multiculturalism and feminism hadn't hit, and I was allowed to read the greatest writers of the English language without thinking to complain that I was reading Dead White Males. That, that, that that. up. so there is an eros of learning. And, uh, I'm reading now Middlemarch to prepare for a a book podcast with Michael Knowles and Dorothea Brooks. It's it's somewhat related. You know, she, she falls in love with Kazabon out of a desire, not so much for academic knowledge, but to in the hope that he will hold out to her the possibility of a greater intellectual and emotional life. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a sort of love, which unfortunately in her part too is misguided. But as far as what I would have as a, a university, I found moving and inspiring the way that the late British philosopher Michael Oakeshott te- talks about education and he says it's a it's a transaction between generations to pass on a civilizational inheritance. And he says once politics enters the room or any kind of external education, that education tiptoes quietly out the back door. It should simply be about passing on in love for our civilization, for its greatest accomplishments, with as much humility and gratitude as possible, I would immerse people deeply into the greatest works of Western civilization. I would start with Western civilization. That is our culture. That is our primary responsibility. If there is world enough in time to be equally first in, say, Chinese or Indian or African civilization, by all means do mm-hmm. it. But the primary responsibility is to start with the Judeo-Christian tradition, with Greek philosophy, with the tre- Greek tragedians, mm. with Aeschylus, with, with Aristophanes, with Euripides and Sophocles, with Plato, Aristotle. The ideas that gave us and
1: Galileo such Galileo and ideas,
0: Einstein course, <laughs> as the rule of law, the responding to the human desire to live with neutral decision making with neutral principles not to be under the tyranny of political partisanship Mm -hmm. and I would immerse them in medieval romance uh, renaissance, pastoral poetry Spencer uh, Andrew Marvell the great novels the wit of uh, Max Beerbohm of, of Mark Twain, uh, the great oratory of Frederick Douglass. And it should be with a sense of we do not deserve these works. We are not good enough for them. Mm. Let us understand how people could be so eloquent and so insightful. And science, I think, given the current uh, interest and and belief that the STEM fields are uh, the way to go, of course we should have science, but that's not what's missing now. Mm. You know, we already have students that are flocking to those fields and and computer science as well. What is missing, the gaping, tragic hole in contemporary education is in the humanities above all, to a lesser extent, the social sciences. The humanities are where my heart lies Uh, And we need to return to a depoliticized version of that where students can simply fall in love with beauty and fall down the the abyss that takes them out in the other direction into a universe of of just sublimity and grandeur. Mm -hmm.
1: I want to finish up with um, one question I usually ask a whole bunch, but in the interest of time, I know your time is, is, is very precious right now. Um, if you—so uh, the Into the Impossible podcast is named after one of Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous three laws, the first law being any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic— for which our friend Michael Schirmer has one about about extraterrestrials, but we're not going to get into that. Um, uh, The second law is that for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. That's the second law of Sir Arthur C. Clarke. And the third law is... Uh, the only way to tell what's possible is to venture a bit beyond into the impossible, and that's where we get the name for our podcast. My question for you is, looking back uh, uh, on your life, what things might have seemed impossible to you as a 20-year-old, as a 30-year-old, that now seem eminently doable because you went ahead and did them? In kind my of, life? Yeah, advice to your former self, so to speak.
0: Hmm. Uh well, I never thought about a career. I, I never had the confidence to think that I would be employable and anybody would want to hire me. I was one of these perpetual students that I, I, I could think of nothing uh, more sublime or, or desirable than being in the library stacks and being allowed to learn more. I just I hungered for knowledge. So I just was always wanting to to... Overcome my own ignorance more. So it's not as if I ever thought, "What am I going to do in five years?" I had the luxury of being able to always study. Um, I guess I came up against Latin. I learned languages at Latin. I foundered on. I couldn't do that. Uh, I, I wasn't good. I did physics for poets at Yale. I'm afraid we got hit with the <laughs> Lorentz transformation. This was supposed to be physics for poets. Come on. So that I founded on that, but. I guess I never would have thought of myself as doing journalism. I regret that I did not do student journalism. I was not interested. I, was, I, I wasn't political. I wasn't involved in current affairs. I was in the stacks, alas, reading too much Jacques Derrida, but also reading The Fairy Queen. Um, so I, I can't say that I thought about things and said I couldn't do them because I really wanted to be able to understand what I was reading at the moment. But I guess if you'd said to me, you will be writing journalism, I would have said, what's that? And how could that be? Uh, because it's perhaps too practical or, or too much in the world, uh, or that you would be, you know, going to housing projects in East Harlem or welfare offices in the Bronx and talking to the clients there. That, that would have been somewhat of a surprise
1: to my negative self. Mm. And then the other connection to Sir Arthur C. Clark uh, on this podcast is I usually ask guests, presumably you've seen the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, have you?
0: I do. I don't remember it very well. It was very scary. Yeah. There
1: might be one iconic scene that you remember when these uh, primates come upon this huge monolith, this structure, and they throw a bone up into the air, and then it becomes into uh, this this whirling around satellite. But there are these monoliths placed by this unseen—I don't know how much of a sci-fi fan you are, by the way. Maybe I should have asked you this beforehand. But there are these time capsules, basically, placed— on the moon uh, meant for to teach the human species lessons only when they're ready to learn them. In other words, we can't find something on the moon until we have technology to go to the moon. We can't find, uh, you know, uh, the primates in the savannah three million years ago couldn't understand this monolith that was placed there. They're either some kind of machine or or technical communications device meant to teach lessons. And now I want to go, you just went to the past to tell your future or your past self what uh, advice you might have given to her. Now I want to ask the opposite direction. What would you put, if you had a time capsule and you knew it would last a billion years, what kinds of things, what would you put on it? What would you put in it? What would be the um, the, the things that you most want to celebrate, maybe by yourself or about humanity as a whole, to last for all eternity, effectively?
0: Well, I would put all of Mozart's operas. I would put the St. Matthew Passion. I would put Chopin and Brahms. Uh, I would put don't,
1: don't put it on a USB drive. They may not be able to use it.
0: <laughs> yeah, they'll flop a floppy disk. That's nice the one. Uh, so you're going to have to take care of the That's right. I'll do right? it. I'll handle so, that. Yeah.
1: Good. Um, so it will be in a cultural, art, artistic realm.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and it's, uh, I mean, I guess I, as far as like what, what we might discover, I think consciousness is obviously the You know, neuroscience. We, whether we will understand ourselves ever, if that's possible, to double back. Mm-hmm and whether we will understand the origin of the
1: universe. That's uh, obviously the, both of those are near and dear to my heart. In fact, you know some of the greatest questions I'm interested in exploring are all these kinds of origin stories. Whether it's the origin of the universe, possibly from nothing we don't know yet, or it's the origin of matter, um, or it's the origin of life from non-inorganic matter, or it's the origin of consciousness from uh, organic matter. These are these kind of big bangs that took place in our in our gr- grand history. And on the consciousness front, uh, in, a, in, a, in a little bit, I'm going to be talking. You know, I said Arthur's. Uh, Second law was for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. Uh, Later today, I'm going to be talking with Noam Chomsky, who is probably far uh, on the the other side of the spectrum politically uh, from you as as is possible.
0: Not in foreign
1: policy. Okay, so interesting. So, in the ways that you are, what do you think makes him so controversial? I want to say first of all, and I'm going to ask you what your controversial figure and um, and I think you've uh, you know for some, what do you think makes you controversial to people? Why is and you can't say because I. The truth because that's, no, I right that's obviously, little, I, you know, everybody, I'm,
0: yeah. I'm uh, well, I think right now there is a uh, a pact that society has made to blend everything on racism, all socioeconomic disparities on racism, and I think uh, people turn their eyes away from other explanations for socioeconomic disparities. I think. The myth of bias is very powerful now, and I think that it needs to be countered. There are behavioral, cultural explanations that also should be brought into play in understanding any socioeconomic disparities, questions Mm -hmm. of personal responsibility, again, the academic skills gap. Uh, So those are things that are taboo. You're not supposed to talk
1: about them. Uh, Heather, thank you so much.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Volko.